Get a lot written today? Yes. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. I just want to finish my work. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Clink. And I am the love child of David Clink and Linda Carter, Troy Harkin. And this is our fourth episode of Season 2. Today's episode looks at On Writing, a memoir of the craft by Stephen King. We are recording it on Saturday, November 13th, 2021, and scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, November 27th. We have a special guest, Bev Vincent. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Okay, let me just push the spoiler alert button. Here it comes. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. Thank you very much. We are recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, Bev Vincent was our special guest in episode seven of season one, which was from June 26, 2021, when we looked at The Dead Zone by Stephen King, the book, the movie, and the TV show. Bev is our first return guest. And just as an update, Bev and Troy continue to be Facebook friends, and now David is Facebook friends with Bev. Oh, no. Look what's happened. Let's let's introduce our special guest. Bev Vincent is the author of The Road to the Dark Tower and The Stephen King Illustrated Companion, as well as over 100 short stories, including appearances in Ellery Queens, Alfred Hitchcock's, and Black Cat Mystery Magazines, and Cemetery Dance. His work has been published in 20 languages and nominated for The Stoker Twice, Edgar Ignotus, and ITW Thriller Awards. In 2018, he co-edited the anthology Flight or Fright with Stephen King. Recent works include the novellas The Ogilvy Affair and The Dead of Winter, the latter found in Dissonant Harmonies with Brian Keane. To learn more, visit bevvincent.com, B-E-V-B-I-N-C-E-N-T dot com. Welcome, Bev. Thank you very much. So good to see two of my Facebook friends in the real world. All righty. Yeah, great to have you back for the return visit. That's an honor to be the first repeat visitor. Usually at this point in our podcast, we ask our guest what their early genre loves were and what their all-time faves are. We already did this with Bev back when we were doing The Dead Zone in Season 1. But we have added some categories since then. And if you do want to see what Bev's answers were, please go to our podcast episode on the dead zone. But here we've added a few more and Troy will uh, take it away and ask about the extra categories we've added. Uh, We'll get to our a la carte in just a second, Bev. But before we do, I was just wondering, is there anything that has uh, caught your fancy since uh, we last spoke in terms of things that you've read or seen that are genre-related? Well, you know, there's uh, several books that I could mention. Um, The most recent one uh, that comes to mind is uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw uh, by Stephen Graham Jones which is basically the be-all and end-all of slasher movie 
fan fiction tribute testimonial, however you want to call it. Uh, it's just a fantastic book by somebody who's very quickly becoming one of my favorite writers. Um, also, I would Excellent. mention uh, Where They Wait, uh, which is the new book by Scott Carson. And Scott Carson is the pen name of Michael Corita. Um, he has started dividing his works into the Corita books, which are thrillers, and the Scott Carson ones, which are uh, supernatural. And this one involves, uh, I guess we would say, a haunted app, uh, like, a, uh, like a cell phone app. So very, very cleverly done. And to sort of tie things in with the uh, Stephen King notion, uh, Laura Lippman has a book out called Dream Girl, which is really her take on the misery concept. Um, mm. A writer who is uh, bedridden for various reasons and what happens when other people try to capitalize on that. Excellent. Well, we'll have to have a look for those. Uh, so with our a la carte section, we have um, a few categories and you can pick and choose if you want to respond to any of these or just let them be. Um, but here, this is what we have uh, in terms of genre. This is of course, all always genre related, your favorite genre, podcast, audiobook, documentary or mockumentary, uh, nonfiction book or essay, filk. And finally, uh, best fish. That is, of course, a genre best fish. So when I give you my answers before, the, the one that I just sort of overlooked, I, I should have come to me right away, if it was you know, the best musical. And I should have thought of, of course, Carrie, the musical, uh, which is famously the uh, biggest flop in Broadway history, or at least was at that point. And so when we're talking about podcasts, um, I contributed to the first episode of a podcast called Out for Blood. And it was a couple of people who, from England, I believe, who managed to round up just about everybody who was ever involved in that. From the cast, oh, wow. the writers, the producers, the whole works. And they produced this eight-episode podcast called Out for Blood, which was a lot of fun. Because people have a fairly fond memory of uh, that musical, and uh, it's a really deep dive into how it came about and everything that happened along the way. Uh, favorite genre audiobook? The one that comes to mind is Duma Key. Oh, uh, yes. And it was read by uh, one of the actors from uh, Mad Men. Yes, Patrick. Let me, oh, I can Google this really quickly. John uh, oh, That's it. That's it. That's and it. He has the absolutely perfect pitch demeanor for this very acerbic, somewhat sarcastic character. And it is just an absolute delight. It's a good, it's a really, really good book, but Slattery just really brings something extra to it in his reading of it. Yeah, that may be one of the last uh, audiobooks that I ever had on CD. I got it from our library. And yes, it blew me away. His reading of it really was something. Uh, favorite genre documentary or mockumentary? This one is, I don't think that they intended it to be a mockumentary, but it really is. Uh, Room 237, mm. which is a deep dive into all of the conspiracy theories around Kubrick's version of The Shining. And if you have tinfoil hats around, not <laughs> wearing for when you're watching this, right. uh, some of them are just so far out in left field that they're coming back around on the other side again. Uh, favorite nonfiction book or essay? Uh, that one's a little bit hard. But the one that I picked was uh, The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. Not, it's sort of genre adjacent, but it's her book about Ted Bundy. Okay. Phil, uh, I had to actually look that one up because I thought it was something else. Um, but now that I realize what it is, I would say it's The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. By Leonard Nimoy. Yes. Oh, okay. You know what? I'm taking the opportunity to play a little bit of that for our listeners right now. Bilbo, Bilbo only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins. Yep. And the best fish 
Well, you know, there's no fish like an Albert fish who is the serial killer in Black House. Oh, yes. My best fish. Very nice. I think Stephen King said it best when he said, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others. Read a lot and write a lot. There's no way around these two things that I'm aware of. No shortcut. On to on writing. Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. Stephen King. You may have heard of him. He's a New England genre writer who splits his year between Maine and Florida. And of course you've heard of him. Stephen King to date has published 63 novels, seven using his pseudonym Richard Bachman, five nonfiction books, over 200 short stories, most of those appearing in his 11 short story collections. If that wasn't enough, he's written 19 screenplays. Many, many more of his works have been adapted by others into feature films. He is easily the most famous, most successful writer of our age. He's been writing professionally for over 50 years now. King likes writing so much that at least 14 of his major characters are writers. So clearly, anyone who writes or wants to write could learn something from him. In 1997, he began working on what would become on writing a memoir of a craft. To put it in context, King had recently published Wizard and Glass, the fourth book of his Dark Tower series. Bag of Bones would follow in September of 1998. In the world at large, Bill Clinton was the president. The internet was still a novelty, not a necessity. And the World Trade Center Twin Towers were still standing. Between 1998 and 1999, the book lay dormant with only the toolbox and CV sections of the book completed. King reread what he had written at the beginning of June 1999 and recommitted himself to the project. But on June 19, 1999, while walking along Main State Road 5, King was hit by a van being driven by a distracted driver. King suffered catastrophic injuries from head to toe and was lucky to have survived at all. His recovery was long and painful. He would need to learn how to walk again through excruciating rehab sessions. What was just as difficult for the writer was dealing with his history of substance abuse. Introducing heavy painkillers to his system presented a special jeopardy of its own. Due to the pain King experienced, he was only able to sit up for short periods at his computer. As an alternative, he began writing longhand. On writing is organized into five sections, CV, what writing is, toolbox, on writing, and on living, a postscript. In the first section, CV, King highlights the events in his life that impacted his writing career. What writing is, is a brief chapter where King urges the reader to take writing seriously and not to feel the need to overwrite. Rather, he suggests letting the reader be an active participant. He suggests writing is a form of telepathy, a partnership between the writer and the reader. The third section, Toolbox, deals with every writer's essential skill set. In the on-writing section of the book, King details his advice to aspiring writers. The final section, On Living, a postscript, King describes in detail his account of being run over and how it affected his life and his craft. On Writing was the first book King published following his accident. It was followed by the novel Dreamcatcher, a book King refers to as his oxy novel, as it was written during that year of physical rehab and heavy painkiller usage. Since the release of On Writing in 2000, King has published 23 novels and six story collections, numbers that eclipse the output of most writers' entire careers. In 2008, On Writing was included on Entertainment Weekly's list of the new classics, the 100 best reads from 1983, to 2008 and there you have it David thanks a lot Troy Um, Bev can you tell us how you were first introduced to on writing well even though the internet was not a necessity at the time it was actually a pretty vibrant place if you were a Stephen King fan in the late 1990s there was this thing called internet newsgroup, Usenet newsgroups. 
And alt.books.stephenking was a really, really happening place to be. There were hundreds of people, posts by the dozens every day. And that's where we got most of our Stephen King news at that point. And so in uh, late 1998, uh, we heard that King had mentioned that he was working on this nonfiction book. And at the time, he was calling it On Fiction. It ultimately became On Writing. But we knew that the book was coming down the pipeline. And it was also via that uh, same news group that we found out that a 14-page excerpt of On Writing had been released where people could contribute as much or as little as they want to uh, literacy partners' benefit uh, to download a PDF of these uh, opening 14 pages. So that was really when I first knew much about the book. And it was probably May of 2000 when I got my advanced reading copy and was able to really dive into it. And Troy, how about you? I'm trying to recall as best I can. You know, it, it, I thought it was like quite a while after its release, but I, I, in retrospect, I don't think it was. I think it really was within a year two at the top of, of it being released. Um, I, I was still quite busy. I guess um, I'd been out of university for a couple of years and I was putting a lot of my energies into screenwriting. And I actually had fallen off being a constant reader because I was a constant reader from about 83 to, I don't, I can't even think of, I guess till university is like 93, 94, something like that. And then books came out because, you know, <laughs> Steve is so prolific that, you know, if you don't read his stuff for a couple of years, all of a sudden you're behind. Um, and that's sort of what happened to me. And uh, a mutual friend of ours, Sandra Kasturi, recommended uh, Bag of Bones. She said, you really have to read this book. This book is like one of the best things he's written. And uh, I think I maybe at that point ha had fallen into this weird snobbery where actually, you know, it's like, well, do I need to read Stephen King anymore? Um, <laughs> and of course I do. Um but so I came back and realized on writing was out. Um, I found it, as I mentioned, on CD. And so I remember like whenever I drove, I would listen to it in the car. And and I realized quickly that it, I wish I'd had this book 20 years earlier because I suppose I started writing around the early 80s. And all I really had at that point was two Laos Egri books that I think everybody had, if you were had any sort of leanings towards writing. Um, and um, but they weren't very good. One was um, the art of creative writing; the other is the art of dramatic writing by Laos Egri. And I found them sort of esoteric. I don't know. I think I have a feeling that they may have actually been translated from another language because I could never quite clue into what he was saying at some points. And then, and then you know. Stephen King is laying it all on the line for you. His process is there. Um, everything that works for him is there. Um, and, and things like, you know, reminders about how great the elements of style is. Um, all of that. It, it was just so welcome. And, and I realized, uh, probably along with my copy of uh, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Come, it's my, probably my most highlighted book. Um, it's got marginalia everywhere. Every, almost every page is underlined or or has highlighter. Um, so that was me. That was my introduction, and it's never been. I've, I've had a hard copy now, uh, probably ever since I got through that first listening of the CDs, and um, and I refer to it all the time. Uh, thanks a lot, Troy. Um, I think you wanted to ask something about uh, music before just to make sure that we don't miss well, that I, I did because um uh i know that well I'll let bev talk about it a little bit more but in his book uh dissonant harmonies um which is a, two novellas uh one by bev one by brian Keane. um i know that um playlists play an important an important part of uh i guess the birth of the book um and king in on writing uh, talks about how he loves to have music on, in his case, loud, uh, 
used to be the Ramones and uh, ACDC mentions Guns N' Roses as well as sort of a way to like shut out background noise. But um, I know myself, I, I do get into creating playlists based on my characters before I uh, sit down to write and I just have that on in the background. But what about you, Bev? You want to tell us a little bit about um, the part music plays in your process and also specifically with Dissonant Harmonies? Well, Dissonant Harmonies was a little bit of a different creature because I've never predefined a playlist for what I'm working on. I just listen to whatever strikes me that day. But the concept behind Dissonant Harmonies was Brian and Keen and I talked about the kinds of music that we typically listen to when we're writing. And we did have a fair amount of overlap, but we also had a fair amount of, you know, unique elements in our playlist that things that the other person didn't really listen to or wasn't even necessarily aware of. And so we each put together a CD length playlist for the other author to listen to while he was working on a novella. Now, we didn't necessarily expect the novella to be consciously inspired by the playlist. You know, it wasn't going to take elements from those songs necessarily and turn them into uh, part of the story. But we wanted the background music to somehow or other influence how we were feeling when we were writing. And so I put together, you know, I think 17 songs. Uh, some of them were things Brian had heard of. A large number of them, I don't think he even was aware of things like Spongle, uh, which is a trance music group, which I really like because it's just got that energy. And he sent me a lot of things like iced tea and so a lot of country music um, that's not typically on my playlist. And we each came up with our stories. So that was that was sort of a unique experience. But I do tend to listen to music when I'm writing first draft. And more often than not, it's uh, instrumental music, although occasionally it can be songs that have lyrics as well. Um, when it comes time to revise, uh, anytime I have to edit, then I have to be completely quiet. I can't have anything, even uh, right. instrumental music, uh, distracting me. Yeah, I, I just want to say for listeners that it's quite a, um, an eclectic list that the two of you put together for uh for your playlists um I'll, I'll give the first couple here dead man's blues by super tramp uh is it mount tady is that how you pronounce mount it tady, yep. mount tady by mike oldfield uh nothing is something worth doing by and how did you pronounce that spongle spongle uh fortunate son by bruce hornsby oxygen is it oxygen or oxygen by uh jean michel jarre uh, and it, it goes on. It's really something. And um, yeah, did you, is this available on Spotify, by the way? It is. Yeah. If thought you so. search Dissonant Harmonies on Spotify, you'll come up. Some of those, there's a few of the songs that aren't there. We've had to substitute in alternatives, but uh, the vast majority of the list is there. I will do that. Well, thanks for, for sharing that, Bev. Yep. My pleasure. Um, Bev, why do you think that on writing is still relevant and popular and still speaks to the current generation? The fundamental ideas that King puts forward are universal. Uh, none of that is really going to change with time. Um, you know, there are over the course of centuries, there are different ideas about how writing happened but to uh you know to, to bring together i mean he's like you said earlier he's the world's most popular best-selling writer at this point in time and so the things that have caused him to be a writer and the things that he has learned as a writer are of course completely germane to what most other people are doing. And I always find it interesting that there are a lot of people who don't necessarily even read any of King's fiction who have come to on writing and found something in it for them. Um, I, there's a lot of people who just said, this is such a really, really influential book. Um, there are lessons in it that anybody can take regardless of what genre you're working in. And you don't have to be a King fan to, uh, to, to take, lessons away from that uh, that book. It's interesting that the, the germ for the book came from a discussion he had with Amy Tan. And the gist of the conversation was that 
nobody ever asks genre writers like us about the language. And he said, they almost seem to imply that the language isn't important to us, that we're all about sheer story, you know, substance over style over substance and back and forth, where he really wants to talk about the language. And it's a bit of a revelation, I think, to people who don't read in genre, that people who are writing in genre are really interested in not only getting a good story out there, but also in the way that the story is crafted and written. Yeah, and I've got to say that that's one of the things that drew me to King's writing when I was younger was uh, was his usage. You know, like the way he would phrase things would crack me up often. Or, um, you know, you would see it and hear things in a way that I'd never seen or heard. Um, and I was always compelled to, to read on because of his, his usage. You know, one of the things that I wonder about, Bev, in terms of um, the book's remaining relevant, um, I, I, would, I would like to know if King ever plans on sort of adding an appendix that would deal with um, sort of, I guess, the fact that we are permanently in the internet age now and we have things like online submissions, um, you know, just addressing all of these new things that, that I guess weren't touched on at all in the book um any idea if that if that might happen well you know this the the practicalities of writing that king talked about you know submitting stories that was drawn from his own experience as Mm. somebody who was not yet a fully successful author you know somebody who printed out manuscripts and stuck them in an envelope with a self-addressed stamped envelope (laughs) right and I think that his experience of submitting in the 21st century is probably quite a bit different from that of uh, (laughs) you or me. Yes. Um, You know, he probably doesn't go to Submittable and uh, create an account to uh, send something into, uh, uh, you know, a magazine where he's never submitted anything before. So his awareness of that is probably not quite as good as it was for how things were done in the 70s and 80s. Right. the thing that I always like that he updates from time to time, and, and now with Twitter, it's sort of a, a you know a traveling feast, is the section at the back with the books that he recommends, which he first did with Das Macabre, and then he updated, you know, created a whole new list for on writing. Yes. Anybody who follows him on social media now sort of gets a live stream of where his thinking is on things that he's enjoying. Right. It's funny, I had a conversation with a young writer um, in the past year, and um, and I just sort of like referred to an SASE, and, uh, and she had no idea what I was talking about. And it's like, what do you, you're a writer, what? And then it's like, oh yeah, right, we don't do that anymore. But You yeah, really want to get a blank look, talk to them about international reply coupons. <laughs> <laughs> Even the post office doesn't know what to do with them. <laughs> Definitely. Um, one thing uh, that he did mention that there, there was this a uh, couple books uh, I, I can't remember. I, I have notes about the the second one, but the first one is the elements of style, and this was one of the things that when I was writing back in the early seventies was something that was a requirement. Like you had to have your copy of Strunken White's The Elements of Style and have it read through and understand what the heck's going on and apply it to your writing. And I was very happy when King mentioned it, but that he did this book in 2000 and he was brought up on this kind of thing in the 60s and 70s. I just don't know if this book is was as important to you guys when you were formative writers starting out and whether or not you think that this, this book still is relevant today, the elements of style, I should say, and whether or not it's even people even use it nowadays. It's hard to say if people are still referring to it. I mean, I think it's fundamental lessons are still relevant, but with the internet, um, anybody who has a question about style or grammar can easily search that specific thing. 
So what one of my uh, deficiencies is I have a hard time with lay, lie, laid, laying, laying, all of the various forms of that, those verbs. And so I have a little snippet that I printed out that I found on a, on a website that helps me get those things straight, even though I often still mess them up. And I think, you know, I don't know if people are as patient uh, to sit down and actually read what is admittedly, you know, helpful but dry reading to read a book on grammar and style versus encountering something in your own writing and saying, that doesn't look quite right to me. Let's look it up and see what what's the issue here and then just sort of spot checking things. And I, to, I would admit that for the most part, that's probably what I would do these days rather than go back to a, a book. Yeah, I still keep mine handy just in case, but you're right. I'm sure, I guess most people do probably Google. In fact, my daughter, whenever I ask her a question, she always says, well, why don't you just Google it? It's like, because I want to talk to a human. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And But every time I see a wonky meme, and I know this totally sounds like uh, we are now in the domain of two old farts, David, <laughs> but whenever I see a wonky meme, you know, with, with screwed up apostrophes and whatnot, it's like, I just want to throw a copy of Elements of Style at them, you know? I have a friend named Jack Herringa who teaches, uh, I think, uh, grade school or uh, junior high, but he is a real stickler for grammar. And he often goes on quite lengthy diatribes about misuses of apostrophes in particular, but just grammar in general. And so we did this, uh, essentially a roast book a few years ago called Jack Herringham Must Die. And (laughs) over the course of that day, everybody posted a story in which Jack died in some violent way. And the way I had him killed was he was raising his hand at the at the sign above a store that had an apostrophe in the bat in the wrong place and the apostrophe fell off and killed them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a, a, a bugaboo and I, I will never probably win because I know, I mean, e- even in the book in on writing King says, um, you know, it's never S apostrophe. It's always S apostrophe S and, and that's one that I, I do prefer the S apostrophe. First of all, I had an album, I think it was called Elvis, Elvis gold albums or something like gold records. And it was on the album. It was S apostrophe. And I always say, well, if it's S apostrophe S, shouldn't that be like Elvis's like, I, I keep wanting to get into that. Can't we just, can't we just let it be anyway? <laughs> and there's your beetle reference. Oh, let I get it a be. Oh, the, <laughs> you had to throw that in there. You have to have our, our one Beatle reference. And one thing I wanted to ask before we get into our favorite quotes and favorite s- suggestions from the on writing is whether or not either of you have used the word zestful in a story. I don't think I have. I don't think I have either, but seeing the word, the first thing that comes to mind is a soap commercial. <laughs> you're not fully clean until you're zestfully clean. Zestfully clean. Best if you want to send me some soap for plugging you, you know, work fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with because uh, I th- figured each of us has our favorite bits and favorite advice and favorite things that the that on writing brings. So I will just start with one and then we'll see if we can sort of make a round table, maybe make comments on each one's suggestion, but one early on, which uh, um, really um, got to me was this. It's, it basically says, and whenever I see a first novel dedicated to a wife or a husband, I smile and think there's someone who knows Writing is a lonely job. Having someone who believes in you makes a lot of difference. They have to, they don't have to make uh, uh, speeches. Just believing is usually enough. Yeah. And a big part of on writing is a tribute to Tabitha King. Yeah. Books of it where he acknowledges, you know, she's the person that he writes for ultimately. Yeah. And I always think of the moment, you know, I imagine the moment when Tabitha 
removes the, the carrier manuscript from the garbage, you know, <laughs> and thinking, what if that hadn't happened? You know, like, what if that, because everything sort of snowballs from there, you know, with the, the book being published and the film being made, and then we're off to the races, you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's tabby is sort of essential to it all. Well, I'm going to throw it just really quickly before I get into maybe going more uh, in order with my quotes. But this is the one that has become, it's, it's on t-shirts, it's, it's memes, and it's, it's just simple and beautiful. And it's uh, books are uniquely portable magic. Um, and it's just so true. And as much as I love uh, Audible and whatnot, there's still nothing like having a book sort of with you as almost a security blanket that you can just dip into it at any point, wherever you are. And I think he subconsciously quotes himself in Billy Summers by having one of his characters say that same sentence. Yeah. A quote that struck me the first time I read it that I used as my footer quote for a long time was, life isn't a support system for art, it's the other way around. Mm. Yep. And, and that one just resonated with me. And I sort of, if I, if I'd been able to a needle point, I probably would have made a needle. Point <laughs> I can see that hanging in Annie Wilkes's house. <laughs> um, that actually, yeah, I had that one in, uh, as my next one. So I'm crossing that off the list. There we go. David, well, what do you have? Next, if yeah. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. I've got, and this is his most controversial one, I think, or one of his most controversial ones that a, a number of people may or may not agree with. And I've sort of grown over it over the years. And I, I'm more of a believer. Basically he says, if you're a bad writer, no one can help you become a good one or even a competent one. If you're good and want to be great, forget about it. It's pretty harsh. <laughs> well, life is well, I was talking uh -huh. to Troy just earlier, like like just before the podcast, about this idea that some people just think that with enough training or you put your 10,000 hours or you do this or that, eventually you can get at a level where you're actually riding with the greats. But then I was thinking of maybe King is right, because you got that moment with Salieri and Mozart in the Amadeus film, and Amadeus is says, well, actually, I do like something that, that you've done, Salieri, and he starts playing the, the tune. And they said, well, I would prefer sort of like, the, the, and this is what I would have done with the thing. And then he turns the melody. It's still Salieri's theme or whatever this piece of music that Salieri came up with. But with Mozart's hands, it becomes this fantastic, wonderful piece of music because you've got someone who is the great, who is the um, great writer, and Salieri may be a good writer, but that good writer can't write that great thing. So I'm starting to believe more that maybe King is right. Yeah, I mean, I think he he's putting it bluntly, but I think it's all truth. Um, I think there's a reason why we've only ever had one James Joyce. You know, uh, it's, it's it's sort of as simple as that. There's also a reason we don't have that many Paul McCartney's walking around. You know, you can you can know the basics and you can execute them, but at some point there's something else that's intangible that can't be taught. Yeah, I mean, from my own experience, I play the piano like a six-year-old, and I don't know that any amount of practice or education or training or anything will ever get me beyond that level, and certainly nobody is ever going to get me to draw beyond a straight line that requires a ruler. I have no artistic skill whatsoever. And it's a shame because my father really had a draftsman eye and it was a really good artist. My brother inherited that and I have zero talent there and it's just not in me. I don't think that I could ever learn anything beyond where I'm at now. Mm, yeah. Um, this is not particularly um, anything other than than some truth here, where um, King talks about, um, let me just find his name, I have it, oh yeah, John Gould. King talks about John Gould, the sports editor at the Lisbon paper that uh, 
he was working with when he was much, much younger. And he says, uh, Gould said something else that was interesting on that day. I turned in my first two pieces, write with the door closed, rewrite with the door open. And it's just so true. And we know that King later goes into depth on the whole writing with the door closed thing. But to me, that's like something that I almost want to have tattooed on me, you know, uh, write with the door closed, rewrite with the door open. It's just one of those essential things, I think. Now, people will argue and say things, as, as somebody once said to me when I talked about this book, uh, I, I can't learn anything from Stephen King. I don't want to write like that. You know, it's like, oh, you don't want to sell millions of books. You don't want to be, uh, you know, like have your words resonate with people uh, because that's what we're talking about. Um, sure, go ahead and do your own thing if you like, but why not listen to this advice to start with? <laughs> he says this in a number of different ways throughout the book, and it's a little bit controversial, but basically his ban on adverbs. Mm. Um, which, you know, if you read some of his early books, it took him a while to learn that lesson because he was pretty adverb happy in the early days. Yes. And not beyond tossing a few in here and there, even in his more recent works. But, you know, the, the argumentative side of someone would say, you know, why not pick nouns or adjectives or, you know, why pick on adverbs? They're there in the language. Why not use them? And the argument is, is that they can lead to lazy writing. They allow you to dress up a drab noun or adjective by, you know, supporting it with something maybe that's a little bit more colorful when a more precise noun on its own or the combination of a good adjective and noun would be more serviceable. Plus, there's always the old Tom Swifty thing about, you know, adverbs can be almost hilarious when they're poorly used in the wrong context. Right. Yeah, that was actually an important thing for me because I realized that, you know, sometimes we are writing, well, I guess like the, the old phrase would be what, uh, speaking to hear yourself speak or talking to hear yourself speak. Um, and I think sometimes you can get into that as a writer as well, where, you know, it's like, oh, look at look how wonderful this sentence is. And it's like, well, do I, do I, is that what I want to do? Just make pretty sentences or do I want to tell a story and get to the point of telling the story? And as a guitar player, I think of that as somebody like, I love Neil Young and I will take, or even Pete Townsend, I will take a, uh, a solo that consists of, say, three notes uh, over an Eddie Van Halen thing that is all about speed and athleticism, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, why not just get to the point? Make me feel something, but do it in a way where, you know, you don't have to, like, be blabbering on. And, yeah, we can get into that with adverbs. Yeah. Um but even with simple language or with him just trying to tell the truth, King can really have some great lines. Like one of the, the quotes uh, from the thing talks about, he, he says, stories are relics, part of an undiscovered pre-existing world. Um, one of the things that he does like is some colorful, like one of the things he talks about is some similes. For example, he gave two examples of his favorite similes. One was, it was darker than a carload of assholes, uh, which was <laughs> yeah. by George V. Higgins. And then he also quoted from Raymond Chandler saying, I lit a cigarette that tasted like a plumber's handkerchief. So King can bring that kind of level of writing in some of his scenes and, and he does promote that for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I guess around the, the same section where he's talking about adverbs, he gets into um, dialogue attribution as well and sort of, um, you know, not getting too flowery with it. Um, sort of an extreme, the other way that, that I found in the past year was I was reading a prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving and um, he seems to love this. And actually, I, I like it now, too. At first, it sort of struck me as odd, but uh, he'll have like a uh, a page of dialogue of very brief, you know, two or three word sentences among various characters. And it'll be like, uh, oh, let's go there, David said. Why are we going there? Bev said. 
oh, well, we're going to go there and get some French fries or whatever Troy said. <laughs> it's just like a, a page of, of the SEDs, which, and he does it without missing a beat. So I'm not even sure if it was almost like done in a humorous way, but it sort of went in the face of what I was told of to, to try and just drop set unless it does get confusing. Now it will with multiple characters, of course. Um, but um, in a weird way, I kind of enjoyed that in that section of Owen Meany because it was at least two pages of, of literally he said, she said. Okay. Any thoughts on um, uh, voice attribution, uh, Bev? I, I've, I've adopted the, the said uh, philosophy. Uh, Elmore Leonard is a, another big proponent of it. Uh, he has his much briefer 10 rules of writing rather than writing a whole book on it. Um, I probably overuse said, and like you said, there's uh, a lot of times when you can just leave it out. Um, I, I tend to, on revision, go back and try some of them away if there's really only two people in the conversation. But sometimes it, it helps break the rhythm. You know, if somebody has a long uh, soliloquy, you know, like a paragraph yeah. of five or six lines, even uh, putting a, a little bit of a breather in the middle of the, the paragraph sometimes helps uh, alter the rhythm, uh, emphasize one part versus another. So there are reasons to use it that go beyond just identifying the speaker. It, it helps build the sentences and the paragraphs in a certain way. Yeah, definitely. Um, King, I have one quote from King here about this said, he says, while to write ab adverbs is human, to write he, he said or she said is divine. Um, one thing, and he's very much a proponent of, of using that style. Um, now, I've got another quote um, here, and this is one of his big ones, too, that really helped his writing. He said, in the spring of my senior year at Lisbon High, 1966, this would have been, I got a scribbled comment that changed the way I rewrote my fiction once and forever. Jotted below the machine-generated signature of the editor was this uh, moat. Not bad, but puffy. You need to revise for length. Formula. Second draft equals first draft minus 10%. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. even without uh, you know really remembering that specifically, I have found that to be true in general of my editing passes. That, you know, if, if my first draft is 5,000 words, by the time I've had hacked at it and rewritten it, it's easily 4,500 words. You know, but the 10% rule is... You know, even if you're not doing it consciously, that seems to be the way that it works. And and I think it's because we throw everything but the kitchen sink and sometimes including the kitchen sink into the first draft. And then we step back a bit and realize what's necessary and what isn't. Um, there's two things that I really wanted to touch on. Uh, one is uh, writing ritual, which uh, I'll get to in a second. But one of my big takeaways the first time I read the book uh, King says, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others, read a lot and write a lot. And that really made an impression because I think at that time I was not reading enough. Um, but he goes on to say, I'm a slow reader, but I usually get through 70 or 80 books a year, mostly fiction. And that really struck me because I think I thought in the last few years I've been doing pretty well. And I think I'm doing probably closer to 24 uh, you know, at the most, uh, I, I don't know about you guys. How, what would you guess your yearly intake of books is? Pre-COVID, I was probably a 50 to 70 book a year person. Okay. During COVID, it, it's dropped dramatically. Oddly, even though I, you know, you expect to have much more time during pandemic lockdown, I find I'm more easily distracted by streaming television than I I've got a lot of books that are underway that I just have drifted away from, not because there's anything wrong with the books. It's just between a, a day job and writing and the, the allure of so much content on streaming services, I'm finding I have to really grab time for reading. Right. What would you guess, David? Any idea? Um, well, certainly less, but I've been doing a lot more since we're doing this podcast and having to do prep and reading up on a lot of the stories and the things that we 
um, have to do. I was quite happy when I finished all five Game of Thrones novels, which are all about a thousand pages each. And I'm planning on do, uh, reading all of the Dark Tower and, and ready to have Bevac, Bev uh, back in next uh, uh, late summer so we can actually look at those. Uh, one of the things, because I've been switching from poetry to fiction and trying to get more into the fiction kind of things, King is right. You have to read the the, the area that you're interest in writing like for me science fiction and fantasy so i have been got a lot of a collection of what are the best sort of science fiction and fantasy short stories from a lot of people and i've been reading through short story collections because i want to work on short stories before going on to novels i think that's one of the things that king really uh, pushes the idea that if you if you don't read it then why would you write it right yeah and then an argument can be made that you should also read Outside of your genre, too, because um, if you get too um, involved in just reading what everybody else in the genre is writing, then the chances of learning something that might help you evolve a bit as a writer are less, I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the big things, big takeaways, I think, for anybody reading the book is seeing how King approaches writing. Um, now he goes into a lot of detail, but I'll just read this one paragraph here. Um, he says, my own schedule is pretty clear cut. Mornings belong to whatever is new, the current composition. Afternoons are for naps and letters. Evenings are for reading family, Red Sox games on TV, and any revisions that just cannot wait. Basically mornings are my prime writing time. Um, how about you, Bev? What's, what's your uh, schedule look like in for writing? Okay. And I know that early in his career, King was usually writing something new in the mornings and revising a second draft in the evening. So he often had two projects going, although only one was being actively written. Um, for me, my schedule is fairly uh, rigid. Uh, I get up at five in the morning. I spend a half an hour on the exercise machine. And then I come into my office and I work on whatever my writing project is from 5.30 till roughly 7.30. Uh, at that point, I uh, go take a shower, uh, at which point I'm sort of working in the background on what I've just written and what I might be you know, coming up the next day. And then I go to day job mode for the rest of the day. Evenings are typically family, which at this point is primarily just my wife and me, uh, you know, making meals. Uh, watching something on television, visiting, occasionally reading, very, very occasionally uh, revising something, you know, with a hard copy going through with a pen, doing some edits on something that I'm working on. King finishes that uh, particular little section by saying, your job is to make sure the muse knows where you're going to be every day from nine till noon or seven till three. If he does know, I assure you that sooner or later, he'll start showing up, chomping a cigar and making his magic. And um, yeah, it's, it, it has worked out well for me by sort of trying to sit my ass down first thing in the morning while I'm still sort of in that semi-dream state and letting just the ideas come and never, this is my big takeaway, I guess, <laughs> in my own experiences, to never edit that stuff that I write, like while I'm writing. You know, it's such a temptation with uh, with computers to, to do that. But I find you really just have to write it first draft and then come back to it. I also like his vision of what the muse is. You know, you alluded to that <laughs> quote, you know, chomping the cigar. It says, boys in the basement, but the heavy lifters, they're not angelic fairies that throw stardust around. They're right. <laughs> like these cartoon crooks, uh, yeah. you know, from the... Uh, the Bugs Bunny cartoons are those three guys with the, uh, you know, they had the prison uh, guard oh, yeah. numbers on yeah. the front of them. And the, those are the guys who show up and deliver the ideas. And I, I like that idea so much that I have a story in Cemetery Dance called Special Delivery. And it's about this writer who keeps getting deliveries from these kind of guys. They show up on his front door and they've got a box with an idea for them. And it's never a good idea or it's, it's a good idea, but the story is always takes him to a terrible place. And he's finally decided he doesn't want any more of these. And he keeps trying to send them back, but they keep bringing him more and more of these shipments. And what's that called? Special delivery. Special delivery. We'll look for that. What you have anything, David? Um, yeah, we've got maybe about six, seven minutes left. Um, uh, for me, certainly, 
uh, you know, trying to get up earlier and writing and just putting that time in because King has got a lot of things about that. Like the idea that you wait for your muse. No, you don't like, like if you're a writer, you have to write. And if the muse isn't there, but he does suggest that trying to set yourself up in a nice, comfortable room, make sure that the chair, that the desk isn't at the center of the room. It should be at the side because it shouldn't be the center of the life. It should be, you know, life is life. And this is supposed to be something that supports that. So it's a, it shouldn't be the focus of everything. Um, but also the one thing I wanted to quote from, because, you know, King with the way he can write can really touch on the emotion and the power. Uh, this is a quote from the uh, a section after he had been um, uh, hit by the car. He says here, the kids are allowed a brief visit. My wife is allowed to stay longer. The doctors have assured her that I'm banged up, but I'll make it. The lower half of my body has been covered. She isn't allowed to look at the interesting way my lap has shifted around to the right, but she is allowed to wash the blood off my face and pick some of the glass out of my hair. Yeah, chilling. And I don't, um, I'm not going to give you a, a real spoiler here, Dave, but you will revisit some of this as you make your way through the Dark Tower. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and something I'll say is that if you're interested in another look in under the hood at King's writing philosophy, um, his most recent book, Billy Summers, has a character who is a paid assassin. And he's set up with a cover story that he's writing a book. And so that's his reason for being in town. He's been spirited away by his agent because he, if without supervision, he'll never get his job done. So he's supposed to be writing a book. And the character himself is really smart and well-read, but he's never written before. And so he decides he's actually going to give this a shot. And he starts writing his life story. He, you know, his very unhappy childhood, his experiences as a sniper in uh, Afghanistan, and he gets to certain points and he sort of debates with himself. How much do I need to tell? Do I need to go into all the specifics about the caliber of this uh, weapon? You know, what its capabilities are? What do I need to tell them, uh, which is just enough without being too much to get the point across? And it's really another perspective on on writing from the sort of stream of consciousness of this person who's never been a writer before, who's figuring out how to do it on the fly. Yeah, it was a fun book and it was a treat to get two books this year from, from King. Um, I was afraid you were going to go from when you mentioned under the hood that you were going to uh, segue into um, from a Buick eight, <laughs> but which also starts off with a, uh, um, a, a lethal accident. Um, Bev, I wanted to ask you, so as I was doing my research on the book, something came up that I had never heard of, which I, I was really surprised, but I was going through, I guess it was a George Beam's uh, Stephen King companion. And, and in it, he uh, references secret windows, essays and fictions on the craft of writing. Uh, which is a 431-page book uh, published at the same time or soon after on writing. Um, it was published by Book of the Month Club. It's been out of print for ages and supposedly, uh, from what I understand, was not put together that well. It was in need of editing. Um, can you tell me more about this? Um, it's a collection of essays. Some of it's by King, some of it's by other people. Um, uh, some of it is transcripts of speeches that he's made. Um, a couple of his stories are reprinted in it. Uh, I think in the death room being one of them, but yeah, it, it was book of the month club. Um, it came out probably, you know, within a month or two of on writing. Um, it has some interesting essays that I don't think have been captured in other places uh, or are fairly hard to come by. Uh, it's worth uh, seeking out. Uh, you probably 
can get it on the used market for not very much. It, it's not as rare as that. Um, and I, I do um, reference it fairly often because of some of the essays that talk about things that are germane to whatever it is I'm trying to write about at the time. Right. Well, our our listeners who uh, are new to all of this and, and perhaps want to um, uh, find more about King and writing um, fear itself. I don't know if it's still available. It was edited by Tim Underwood and Chuck Miller. It contains a little bit of biography of King and I guess getting his contract with uh, uh, his contract for Carrie. Um, and um, from Bev, we actually have the Stephen King illustrated companion, which is an amazing book uh, put out by fall river press, uh, the dark tower companion and the road to the dark tower. Yes, some of the things also in uh, this uh, Secret Windows, if you want to see some of King's earliest writings, there are two very short stories that appeared in Dave's Rag, which was the uh, mimeographed newsletter, sort of a neighborhood newsletter that Steve's brother put out in the late 50s, early 60s. So those are two stories that probably people have never uh, uh, had a chance to read before. Um, it also has like some introductions to like I think he's got one to a, like a Jack Ketchum uh, novel. Um, there's uh, the bit from the beginning of Night Shift uh, that he had a long essay at the beginning of that short story collection that talks about uh, his relationship to the horror genre. So yeah, it's it's quite a good uh, quite a good thing. And, and I guess we should, sorry go ahead to the. Uh, the fear itself that, that that collects basically most of his available interviews um, from the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and uh, I, I I reference that one a lot because it's got a lot of uh, things that you don't see anywhere else. And there's there was a another one called uh, Bare Bones, which I think might have even come first, which is the similar idea. It's just right. Of- yeah, and I believe I've got one by Douglas Winter. Oh, uh, that's a great book. That, that's the first time King sort of sat down and gave all access, called The Art of Darkness. Right, yeah. came out in 84, and yeah, I mean, this was like right at the peak of King's career, and Winter gave him full access for I don't know how long, they must have sat down for days and days to talk about all of these things. And it's the first time that there's, Evidence that if you read between the lines that you could have figured out that the Bachman pseudonym was actually King because there are some few little subtle things in there. I think Winter must have known. But by the time the revised version came out in 86, then uh, he can actually talk by that point about uh, the Bachman books. I just wanted to uh, mention that um, also for listeners, if they're curious about on writing, there's a great version of it on Audible, which David uh, listened to as his introduction and King does the reading. And there's some great supplementary material with his sons as well. David, did you want to mention anything about your experience with that listen? Yeah, it was great. And then I had my copy that I had bought back in 2002 that I read through afterwards, nice listening to the echoes of what I had already heard on the uh, audible recording. Um, Definitely worth um, uh, picking up. Uh, One thing I just wanted to say, because we're right at the end of our episode, uh, we can ask, obviously, Bev, if there's anything else he wants to add, but two last quick quotes. Um, from uh, Stephen King, writing is not life, but I think that sometimes it can be a way back to life. And he ends the actual on writing book with a quote there. He says, writing is magic as much the water of life as any other creative art. The water is free. So drink, drink and be filled up. Yeah. Bev, is there anything that uh, you wanted to update us on what you're working on now or what's available for folks? Um. Let's see. So, the so dissonant harmonies uh, was out last year. I also did a what I describe as an Agatha Christie noir novella called The Ogilvy Affair, and I decided to stick my foot in the waters of self-publishing, and so I created that book and did all the layout and got myself a cover and did the whole thing. And you can find that on Amazon. 
Um, I always have a bunch of short stories in the pipeline. This actually has been the last year or two has been a really uh, good stretch for me. I've probably published 15 or more stories or have that many in the pipeline. And if you go to bevvincent.com and look at the fiction tab, you can see what's coming down the pipeline for that. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Bev, for being our, our special guest on this on writing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And always happy to talk to you guys. Get my Canadian accent rolling again. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was very uh, self-conscious of that. I forget where, where I just, I, I think I read it in, in somewhere in one of the books. You mentioned your Canadian accent. I was like, Bev doesn't have an accent. <laughs> it's like, oh no, do I have an accent? <laughs> You yeah. do. I heard <laughs> um, it within the first sentence when you uh, we first started talking. I heard an about, and there we were. <laughs> an about, at least, but it, but at least it's an about, not an about, right? Well, that's yeah. it. I think. Yep, yeah, yeah. That's our on writing episode. <laughs> Remember to check us out on all our various socials that we have. We've got our website, the podcast, we found there. But you're already listening to the podcast, so I guess you know how to find it. But uh, the website has all other juicy tidbits there uh that's uh tooledfarts.ca to numeric to of.ca we're on twitter and facebook and who knows where else now but please tell a friend share with them um and i guess that's it i am david clink and i am the love child of david clink and linda carter troy harkin see you all for our next episode of two old farts Talk sci-fi.